Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Liz Moody Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're asking dentists the newest and best ways to care for our teeth, learning how to cultivate world-class communication skills, or digging deep with a therapist into our childhood trauma and discussing how to heal it. And yes, those are all real episodes, and they are linked in the show notes if you want to listen. I have been wanting to do a deep dive into cancer for a while now, and then at the beginning of this year, the Wall Street Journal reported that the cancer diagnosis rate for people under the age of 50 increased by 12.8% between 2000 and 2019. The American Cancer Society also published a similar study saying that while overall cancer mortality has declined, which is incredible and very hopeful news to keep in mind, an increase in some cancers have rapidly shifted mortality patterns in adults under 50. Early onset colorectal, pancreatic, appendix, stomach, and uterine cancers are all on the rise. In 2019, one in five new patients with colorectal cancer were under the age of 55. These are scary numbers, and I wanted to address them on the podcast, but I also didn't want to create a scary episode because we cannot take our best actions from a place of fear. I personally have suffered from hypochondria a lot in my life, and I wanted to create an episode that I could listen to without spiraling. So while you will get the real facts, the real science on what's going on, this is also an episode that is hopeful, that is optimistic, and that's packed with real simple steps that you can take today to protect yourself. I searched for months to find the perfect guest for this episode, and I am so excited to welcome Dr. Sanjay Juneja to the podcast. Dr. Juneja is a triple board certified hematologist and medical oncologist who hosts the podcast Target Cancer. He has been featured on or in outlets like CNBC, Wired Magazine, WebMD, and The Washington Post. In 2023, he was invited by the White House to participate in their first Healthcare Leaders in Social Media Roundtable series. He's a Business Reports 40 Under 40 Award recipient. He's a 2023 nominee for Helios Disruptive Innovator in Oncology, and he is a contributing writer for Entrepreneur Magazine as a founder of multiple startups and an advisor for cancer-related pursuits that focus on a systemic improvement in the access to and delivery of optimized care. In this episode, we get into the three reasons why more young people are getting cancer, the best diet for cancer risk reduction, what foods and environmental exposures increase risk of cancer, the one thing to do for four minutes daily to reduce cancer risk by up to 25%, if things like microplastics, cell phones, tap water, and more are elevating your risk of cancer an exact plan for what cancer tests to get at what age, and so much more. As always, we would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and Dr. Juneja is at the Onk Doc. Also, please share this one. This episode radically transformed my understanding of what cancer is, how to deal with it, and it's just information that we should all have access to. This is obviously a rapidly evolving area of scientific research, and we will continue to cover it. We will do more episodes, and we will keep you informed without fear-mongering and without overblowing things. One quick announcement before we dive in. We are now officially going to add in a Monday episode every other Monday. I hear you loud and clear about absolutely loving the chatty, more casual advice episodes, so we are 
officially adding in episodes every other Monday. And the hope is to work up to every single Monday. But give me some time there. Please be patient with me. But we are trying. We're trying to get there. Sometimes the Monday episodes will be advice episodes. Sometimes they will be solo episodes. Sometimes they will be celebrity interviews where we get to hear how people are actually using the tools in real life that we learn about in our Wednesday episodes and get to know the real people behind the public personas. They will always be really fun, really honest, really intimate, and I hope that you love them. Our Wednesday episodes are deep dives into science-backed ways for you to live your best life, science but made fun and accessible and interesting. Those are not going anywhere. We are just adding on more to give you even more of what you love. So I hope that you are as excited as I am. We have some really, really fun content lined up already. Okay, let's get right into it with Dr. Janasia. All right, Dr. Janasia, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to get into what is kind of a tricky and difficult topic. Yeah, I'm super excited to, number one, be here because I love what you're doing. And I can tell that your audience is very passionate about just knowing. I think that's one of the biggest problems is not enough sharing in medicine. That's kind of the older culture and it creates mistrust and for very good reasons. So I'm very excited to be here. Amazing. I want to just jump right in with the study that prompted me to want to do this episode in the first place. So this was a study. It was published in Nature, and I'm just going to read from it, which is evidence indicates that the incidence of cancers of various organs, including those of the breast, colorectum, endometrium, esophagus, extrahepatic, bile duct, gallbladder, head and neck, kidney, liver, bone marrow, pancreas, prostate, stomach, and thyroid has been rising in adults under 50 years of age in many parts of the world. And then one of the study authors said, from our data, we observed something called the birth cohort effect. This effect shows that each successive group of people born at a later time, e.g. a decade later, have a higher risk of developing cancer later in life, likely due to risk factors they were exposed to at a young age. We found that this risk is increasing with each generation. For instance, people born in 1960 experienced higher cancer risk before they turned 50 than people born in 1950, and we predict that this risk level will continue to climb in successive generations. So I would just love to start off with your interpretation of this study. It's very complicated, right? That's the quick answer. The reason being is there's many things that go on when it comes to cancer. Right. So that's the key is if it was so binary or simple, you know, it'd be like, oh, it must be something that we're drinking or eating and then we can make it go away. But I like it because of what you're bringing up. You're like, dude, people had X amount in 1950, 1960s more. And now, you know, we have all this stuff coming out showing that colorectal is younger and pancreatic's younger and everything's younger. I know we're going to get this later, but I hope that makes people think, well, it can't be an inherited thing, like just purely because if it was just inherited. Why is everyone just getting a younger and younger? Like, well, how does that make sense, right? So then you look to see, well, what is happening with each cohort, like you said, as people are getting cancer younger, right? People born in 2000s, 1990s, I have several patients in the 30s and 40s, they're just all going up. So you have to look at why. Two of the things that are the most demonstrative on radically different, maybe three things from before is number one, our diet. Our diet is so much different than it was in the 1950s and 60s. There was no Taco Bell Mexican pizzas, which I love. And they were like my weakness in high school and college and, you know, Big Macs and fries and all this stuff, corn syrup, all these things is so radically different than it used to be. 
And then number two, we just move around less, at least in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, nothing's even walking friendly. So those are two of the things and three exposures to stuff like plastics. But it's a fact, people are getting cancer younger. And if you look through troves of stuff to figure out why experts agree that it has to do with diet. And I have a couple of reasons that I think are why that other experts believe to be the case too. Yeah, let's dive into diet. I would love to hear from a mechanism of action perspective why what we eat in the simplest terms would be attributed to an increased cancer risk. If we can for a second, we have to remember what cancer is. Cancer is not, right, catch or just, you know, get out of the air or this, that, and the other. Cancer is a colony or a cluster of what was once your normal cells. So we take for granted all the time that our bodies are just constantly making new stuff. Like our right hand, I always thought it was silly. They'd be like, you know, this right hand that you have wasn't there five years ago. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yes, it was. It was attached to my wrist. But what they mean is that all the cells that you're seeing, everything you're visualizing, that was not there in 2015. So that whole hand, what you're seeing fundamentally is a new hand in the sense of the new cells. Well, that happens to everything. It happens to your colonic tissue, your bladder cells, and your colon, and your gut. Everything regenerates all the time. Your blood cells, right? They only last red blood cells for 120 days. All of it is dying and creating, dying and creating. And so what happens is they all follow order. Like the hand knows not to grow into your wrist, for example. Like the nose knows not to intrude into your bone. If you really think about it, if these are all young, super young cells that just differentiate and grow up and mature into what they're supposed to be, how do they know to just stay in their lane? Well, what cancer is, is all of a sudden, they have no lane. They're just like, I'm going to do what in my primal instinct is the most important thing for a reason. There's a reason they get into this state. But it's like, I got to live. I've got to grow. How do I live? I grow as much as I can. And I try to die as least as I can. That's inherently why we became humans. Our cells were able to adapt and grow despite the circumstances. Well, cancer cells stop listening. They start like, oh, I need blood flow. I need my protein and creatine to get buff. Their equivalent of that is blood flow. They'll recruit blood vessels. So a lot of our anti-cancer stuff blocks blood vessels to a degree. They won't get uniform. They're not pretty. It's not like the military when everyone's supposed to have the same haircuts and stuff like our normal cells are. They start to look different and everything because they don't care. They're just trying to grow. They're trying to survive. So when that happens, depending on where it happens, that's where cancer becomes cancer. It starts to invade into other tissue. So if you've heard of a stage zero breast cancer or like a DCIS, like that's not invasive breast cancer. That's in situ. That means it's starting to go rogue, but it hasn't invaded. And that's why it's a stage zero. But when people think classically, I have cancer, they think about invasive cancer. And that's when, you know, quote unquote, stuff has hit the fan and it's starting to grow. So to answer your question, why is that happening? Well, one reason is, and something we all take for granted, our immune system and our inherent police people know when stuff looks sketchy and they take care of it. All of us are ingrates, except for maybe two people that are going to be like, uh-huh, I, I did this last night. But if you don't go to bed and say, hey, thank you, immune system, for basically killing cancer, we take for granted. We've all had it. We've all had stuff that would have been cancer and our immune system takes it care of it over and over and over and over again. It says it's sketchy and it kills it. And it does it with our white blood cells and our immune system. That's why we learned a lot with AIDS, unfortunately, because AIDS knocks down the lymphocytes and the antibodies in the immune system. And so we saw the ugliest, scariest cancers because their immune systems were shot. So 
if you have an immune system problem, and that's why a lot of people that are on immunosuppressive drugs, meaning like for rheumatoid or lupus or Sjogren's, you always hear immunosuppressive. What does that mean? Like every consent you have says you have an increased chance of cancer theoretically because you're shutting down the stuff that regulates these cells from going rogue and invading stuff. Well, the immune system is downregulated for a lot of reasons. And remember, so think of these people as your police people. They're the people that make sure that you're healthy, they're surveying, they have the wanted posters, they know what to do. When you become less physically active, your immune system goes down. We know that physically active people have more robust immune systems. People that have to walk a mile to get to work, people that have climbed the stairs and all that stuff. It's not that you're not disciplined, it's just you were just always active. Number two, sleep quality. We know sleep apnea people have depressed immune systems. We know that they have increased cortisols and they get low testosterone, all this stuff. There's such stress on sleep because it helps your quote unquote immune system. So those are two things that have changed considerably in our generation now for several reasons. But the third thing is an interesting one. And that's the one I'm kind of gotten a little bit more obsessive with because we are taught as early as 10, 15 years ago in med school, like, well, what you eat doesn't matter so much, like when you have cancer and things like that. And we're taught about this whole pyramid diet and this and that, but we're taught about the macros, but we're not talking about the specific foods. Like we just didn't have an education on that in this country to a significant degree. But what we're learning is what you eat, not just grams of protein, fat, and carbs and stuff, but what makes potentially a considerable difference. And it goes to the gut microbiome. We're neglecting our gut microbiomes like crazy. And what that means is there's a thought by a lot of very smart people that the reason when you get nervous, your stomach drops, the reason that you want to throw up or get nauseous when you get anxious, there is something so intimate with your brain and emotional health and psychology that somehow directly goes like in a trigger to the gut. And we know that people that have a bunch of allergens to food, this, that, and the other, they end up having muscle sores. There's a very intimate relationship from the stuff that's in your gut. We all have bacteria. That stuff protects our skin and it protects our gut. Well, what happens is One, we do a lot of antibiotics way too fast and way too often. So that kills good cells like it does bad cells. But two, our diets are so narrow. Like my kids even, like just from like, I guess the daycare and school, they're just so picky. What happens when you narrow these diets, your immune system trains itself on what to attack and what not to attack based on what it's constantly being exposed to, both when you inhale when you touch things, that's why people say you should let your kids run around barefoot. Mine do. They're relatively healthy as far as I know. These things are exposure so that your immune system doesn't get overhyped or bored or like super vigilant and attack things and cause autoimmune disease and attack your bones and have inflammation. So many degrees of inflammation are happening because our diets are getting narrowed and they're not exposing our bodies to this really heterogeneous or meaning like multiple like kind of fruits like pears and nuts and things that look weird we used to eat all these nuts and grains and fruits and all this stuff that constantly it made us have a robust and precise immune system and now my kids want chicken nuggets mac and cheese fries and like two other things how smart how dexterous do you think that their microbiomes are You really want to have a very robust diet because those vegetables and those fruits and that fiber and the antioxidants, they all have individual things that fight cancer. But in general, it's just the narrowness too that a lot of people are thinking are causing way higher incidences of like allergies, I'm allergic to this, I'm allergic to that, that doesn't sit well with me, like I break out with this, I break out with that. And there's a theory, it's because of a bored immune system. So that's immunity, that's exercise. And then the third one is, I hate this fact but obesity. I wish it wasn't true. Like it sucks. It's not fair because we evolved to like fat 
because we had to. If we didn't, we died off. When we were nomads and we had to walk around and hope we could kill a boar or find a fruit that fell, then if you didn't like it, the things that stored the most calories, you probably died off. If you're like, meh, I'll pass on the flank steak. Like you probably died because it always took forever to eat it. So we're trained in our palates to love the highest caloric things, the ones that are really rich that they can give us this stuff to keep. And now we can get it for 99 cents still for a hot and spicy, which is still one of my weaknesses at McDonald's. It's literally two adjectives, hot and spicy. It doesn't even say it's a hamburger, but I eat them and they're 99 cents and I can get it in my window without even having to walk there. So we're at odds against something that we're very well trained for. But when we get this stored fat, that in itself creates inflammation. It invites mutational errors and these errors over time are what become cancerous in part. That's why we get colonoscopies. A polyp is a sketchy colony of errors. How bad is it sketchy and how bad are theirs? Well, that's when we check the path report to see what kind of polyp. Oh, it's chill. It's an adenoma. Oh, it's not chill. It's a tubulovillus adenoma. Like we know the features where we're saying like you're headed in that direction. And a lot of that is thought, again, it's complicated, is thought because of diet, because of weight, especially around the stomach. And that's just associated with a whole bunch of stuff. Glucose dysregulation, coronary artery disease, all kinds of bad stuff. So it's complicated for that reason. But I hope anyone listening can say, you just listed five to seven reasons that I know are more of an issue today than they were 50 years ago. I hope that's the conclusion of this entire dissertation, and I apologize. But it's that all of these factors that we say are relevant in cancer prevention are considerably different than what our bodies were exposed to 50 years ago. Okay. I have so many questions, but let's start with the obesity thing, since that's the most recent thing that you said. There's a lot of debate in the health world about whether weight, i.e. the number on the scale itself, is indicative of health or whether there's other factors that that might be signifying that can be more helpful in terms of getting a picture of your health. Things like your hormone levels, your visceral fat, which you alluded to. Do you feel like literally weight makes you have an increased risk of cancer or a lessened risk of cancer? Or do you feel like you're using that as a shorthand for these other factors? As like a surrogate. There was a study that JAMA released just this past summer. People that work, that have everyday lives, that whatever, but don't work out, don't do something to get their heart rate to 140 to 150, right? That's when you're pushing yourself. When your heart rate gets high, that means your body is working, right? That's the whole point of getting that heart rate reflects a lot of things. So they took two cohorts of people. They said, one, keep doing what you're doing. And they said, the other one, we're going to make you get that heart rate up, like where you're sweating and panting, for four minutes a day. Four minutes a day. That was it. But that four minutes translated to 20 to 25% decrease in the chance of cancer over their lifetime. Four minutes. Now, if those people are the same weight, that goes back to this whole concept of does this strenuous exercise, this like faster beating of your heart, Does exposing your body to those things make a difference on your immune health and just overall wellness? And it seems to be so because we know it boosts your immune health exercise. And that's the same weight. So that doesn't have to do with obesity, right? The second thing is it's the glucose dysregulation that's a problem. So if you are overweight and you have that A1C of 6165, your sugars are like at 180 or 190 despite like eating well because you can't control it, you can't bring it down versus somebody that may be 10% heavier on the scale, but has no problem regulating their glucose, meaning prediabetes or diabetes. Those are kind of older terms that I don't like. But if you don't have a metabolic syndrome, meaning like you don't have a problem with glucose regulation, there's a lot of people and a lot of data that shows that that part may be 
the thing that's really bad to your exact point, right? Liz, you're saying that the weight is it a surrogate. Now, everything you read, cancer risk, cardiovascular risk, people that died from COVID, all the stuff that's like you are at high risk and should ask your doctor for, you'll almost always find diabetes in that list. You'll also find like obesity, but the question is a good one. Is it obesity because usually type 2 diabetics usually are at least quote unquote overweight on the BMI scale, which thank goodness has finally been announced that it's not a good scale. It's not nearly representative enough. But yes, the weight itself is not enough. It's really the downstream stuff that has to do with how much do you work out? How much do you get that good functional workout, which I think mostly happens to do with boosting your immunity? And then also the diabetes part. That's a big one. Because one theory is, remember, insulin is a growth factor. What does cancer mean? Literally, unregulated cell growth. So if your body is constantly circulating insulin, I need a lot of insulin, like sound the alarms. I got to pull this sugar down into fat, pull it down into fat to store it. If it's constantly doing that, it's literally at like 7,000 RPMs, like on a stick shift, like way hotter than it needs to be. And it's this max and it can't. That means your sugars are high. That means your insulin is not enough to even bring it down. And so you have this increased circulating sugar. It's getting sticky onto your blood vessels, which brings in inflammation into different areas. And we have a ton of fatty liver disease like we never did before. I hate that term because you don't even have to be that overweight. But because of these processed foods, it's just the crazy spike. It's the spike that's happening with this crazy amount of richness in the sugar and the processed stuff that our bodies just are just haywire. They're like, I don't know how to handle this. I eat fast food. Don't get me wrong. Way more often than I'd like to admit. But it has to store that stuff somewhere. So we're getting fatty liver disease. We're seeing early cirrhosis. And then, of course, the stuff that has to do with that when it comes to cancer, like you said, extra hepatic, gallbladder cancers and pancreatic and bile duct and liver, all those things that have to do with that really intimate access, that relationship in there are going up. I have been looking for a quality fish oil to take myself and recommend to you for years, and I genuinely couldn't find one that met my quality standards. And then I kept hearing from doctors on the pod about how important it was for our brains and our hearts, even dermatologists who said it makes a huge difference for our skin, and I was like, okay, I truly need to figure this out. Then I found O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil from Puri. The brand was literally created because the founder ran into the same problem as me. He couldn't find anything truly pure enough to take daily. Puri believes in full transparency with all of their products. Every single batch is third-party tested by the Clean Label Project and IFOS, which tests fish oils looking for the highest quality, safety, and purity standards in the world against more than 200 contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, dioxins, and bisphenols, to name a few, and they always receive a 5 out of 5 star rating. Every Puri bottle actually comes with a QR code so you can scan and see the results for yourself. This is well above the standards of any other fish oil I've found, which is so important to me because if I am consuming something for my health, I don't want it to actually be causing harm. Puri's fish oil is so fresh, you'll never get any gross fishy burps because every batch is tested to make sure it hasn't oxidized and gone rancid. And yes, that is where those burps come from. Do not just take my word. With Puri, you can find actual data behind every single batch, which makes Puri a supplement brand that you can trust. 
Right now, Puri is offering my listeners 20% off their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil and all of their great products. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash Liz Moody, and use my promo code Liz Moody. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions. You will get almost a third off the price. Go to puri.com slash L-I-Z. M-O-O-D-Y. Do not wait. Use promo code Liz Moody at P-U-O-R-I dot com slash Liz Moody. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals but I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, This is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy, and unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found, And the research around shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain-protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on symbiotica.com. Just to kind of recap, perhaps it's more useful to think about is your metabolic health in good shape? Are you physically active? How are your hormone levels? What are you eating, et cetera, instead of just thinking about a number on a scale? Yes, I have plenty of what the medical term would say is unhealthy patients that are technically normal weight, but their diets are terrible. And I'm like, this is not good. I can always see your liver numbers coming up. So that weight alone, by no means. Okay, so let's roll back to talk about the diet stuff a little bit more. You've mentioned a few different dietary things. One, you've mentioned dietary diversity, and that is in the name of having as robust of a gut microbiome as possible. You've also mentioned glucose management, and then you've mentioned processed foods as a negative thing, but mostly in terms of glucose. Let's start with the processed foods. There's a lot of chatter on the internet about the specific ingredients in processed foods, increasing risk of cancer, things like seed oils, just very refined sugars, refined carbs, things like that. Do you think those things are an issue in isolation, according to the research that you've seen, or if we're essentially eating processed foods in addition to getting all of our nutrients in and keeping our glucose level 
are we eliminating the concerns around processed foods? Well, I think you nailed it at the last thing you said. I don't think you can keep your glucose levels regulated well if you're eating processed foods a lot because of those enriched carbs and other things you mentioned. They're so rich that those spikes are what is the issue. So if you're, if you're consistently doing that, does it by itself, does it go touch something and turn it into cancer like a magic wand? No, I don't think so personally. But the same way that weight did have a relationship with like glucose dysregulation or what's called prediabetes, the same thing happens here. They have a relationship because they're bad in the long run. If somebody ate one once a month, I think it'd be hard to support or even one week burger, like fast food, processed food once a week, let alone once a month. I don't know that they would have a statistical difference compared to someone else that never did it as long as they were both working out and everything. I just don't know that. It's the regularity that's the problem. None of those things are ideal. Let me put it that way. But it's not like a magic wand. I think it's the regularity of them. And that's really the concept that a lot of people say for anything. It is what you do with most of the minutes in your life. Like, I think it's bad to think about days and weeks because you're like, I'll work out three days a week. But then that means you worked out less than half your life. That means if it's four days that you're not working out, then your entire 80 years, more than half was inert or at least not working out. So I've long been telling my patients, like, I want you to do 10, 20 minutes close to every day if you can, rather than 90 minutes, two or three times in a week. And so the same thing happens with these like enriched things. There's no doubt that the processed foods are bad when regular. But the thing is, like, who eats processed foods and says, I do it so rarely, right? It's more like when you're talking about the statistics at the beginning and the cancer rates and this and that, our diets, there's no question if you look at it, are processed foods regularly, like with a high regularity, than somebody just having, you know, aspartame, like all these little things where they try to isolate, I think it's far more of an issue in the long term kind of thing. Are there any individual foods, not like a greater meal that would have some sort of metabolic effect or greater microbiome effect, but are there any individual foods that you feel like the data points to that food having a specific impact on cancer? Yeah, processed meats do have an association with cancer. There's no doubt about it. How much is obviously always going to be debated, but there's a general relationship for sure with processed meats, GI cancers, bladder cancers, kidney cancers, and same with like smoked stuff, like smoked meats and barbecuing all the time. Those nitrites from the smoked, you know, they got to get out somewhere. Some of them go through the renal system is a theory. That's why smoking affects also the bladder and kidneys, but especially the bladder because that inhaled stuff has to go out somewhere. So it goes out in your urine. So anything that damages the lining over time is a risk. But processed meats, there's little debate that they do cause cancer. Now, again, is it the one time a month you eat it? Meh. Is it somebody that has a diet and exposure to these things all the time? That's a different issue. It's the exposure that you have that is the dynamic thing that continues to escalate cancer risk or not, right? Most smokers, even if they smoke their whole life, by far, most don't get cancer, like lung cancer, but they've smoked their whole lives. I have people that smoked for literally two packs a day for 50 years that don't get cancer. So does that mean, well, then smoking can't cause cancer? No, but it did increase the risk for lung cancer. It just didn't happen for whatever reason. A lot of them live out in back country, so their diets aren't nearly as heavy with the processed foods. They are walking. They are doing stuff around their farm. So they're doing a whole bunch of balancing things. So the regularity is, is the big point. Now, exposures are a whole different story, right? For example, it's pretty clear that Roundup, inhaling that constantly, that 
has a relationship with blood cancers. We know that. We know Agent Orange like has a relationship with cancers. So we know stuff you're not supposed to take in that are unnatural, obviously, or pesticides or chemicals. We know those cause problems. But as far as something just being out there, especially if it's natural, to just directly cause cancer, I think would be challenging. Short of tobacco and betel nut and all that stuff, right? Those are natural. In India, they have betel nut. They keep under their tongue. It gives a high the same way as nicotine. They get extra oral cancers and stuff like that. When I say that statement, I mean like vegetable fruit, like just the stuff that like are told to be safe to consume. Yeah. I feel like a very easy place to start is like we know smoking causes cancer. We know tobacco in any form causes cancer. Like we're all very clear on that at this point. Right. On the flip side, if somebody was looking to include certain things in their diet, it sounds like focus on diversity of plants. It sounds like focus on keeping your metabolic levels as healthy as possible, as your glucose levels as stable as possible. Are there any other things that you would focus on from your perspective in terms of what the data supports to prevent cancer? Yeah. So, I mean, again, just like one thing won't magic wand cause cancer, usually, unless somebody's consuming, it's the same issue on the flip side. It's like a lot of stuff helps. The problem is, a lot of the plants that help the most, we just don't eat as much anymore. The broccoli, the cabbage, the cruciferous vegetables, Brussels sprouts, kale. A lot of people in the you know Midwest and the country, they're higher in these diets. They just don't have the same incidence of colon cancer and pancreatic and stuff. Like the ones that are rich in these diets, quite like a city meal, either processed food or fast food or things that are quicker. I mean, there are places that we isolate all the time in the world. I can't say all the time because now pretty much you know, processed foods and corn syrup and all these enriched things reach everywhere because it's cheap and affordable. But when we've looked at populations that are completely like free of those things, they're, they were being brought over and studied, like what gene do they have that make them not get cancer? That's how shocking it was that like the rates were so low. I told you those police people that like blow up cells that are sketchy, it's called TP53. We have two. Elephants have like eight to 12. That's why they don't get cancer. So they have a whole bunch of them. So they would bring these indigenous people to be studied genetically, like surely they have a cancer protection gene. What happened? They ended up starting to have cancer while they were here because they started eating an American diet. It's that transplantable. How could these populations, when they come over here, or like in Alaska, when they were never getting cancer, and all of a sudden they got access to getting shipped foods from America, all of a sudden cancer rates have gone through the roof for them compared to that. How do you argue it's not what we're consuming? When you think about what we should be eating or not eating for cancer. There's a lot of debate about what the healthiest diet looks like, even once you remove all processed foods from that. Like how much meat should it include? How many vegetables? Are grains okay? How do you think about that? It depends. If you're a runner, your constellation of proteins versus fats are going to be different than somebody that's not a runner. So that's very important when you're reading, you know, and trying to do the best for your health. That's why, like, I respect people wanting to do the best for health so much. But the things that you're reading may not take into account variable A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's why nutritionists and dietitians, I think, are a little under-respected or at least underutilized. Let me put it that way, because that's where they can look at that. They can look at your health, your weight, what you're doing in a day, and they say, this is your distribution. And then it changes in six months when you've reached your ideals. All that to say in a complicated way. The red meats and the processed meats and stuff, I don't know that anyone argues that it's quote-unquote good to have enough quote-unquote red meat and processed meat, right? There are definitely, there's some 
quite famous people on social media arguing that because plants are so rich in anti-nutrients that it's actually better for your body to eat a more red meat, even heavy diet to avoid the anti-nutrients in plants because those are wreaking havoc on our bodies, including causing cancer. I'd love to get your gauge on like lectins and essentially the ways that the plants are protecting themselves are having negative impacts on our body. And I'd love to separate out like red meat and processed meat because I think like a grass-fed steak is viewed very differently in the health community than like bacon. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So red meats are pretty strongly correlated. Now correlation could mean 1.5 to 1 ratio. It could be 10 to 1, right? But red meats especially for coronary artery disease and inflammation of the cardiovascular system, which you'll notice almost always cancer risk and cardiovascular risk are married together. Like the same things apply to both parts. There is an increased risk of certain malignancies with red meats. And there is also the same thought when it comes to coronary disease and health and strokes and stuff like that, because the argument is there's some pro-inflammatory constituents to meats that our gut microbiome maybe hasn't over time adapted to eating. But the way I always look at these things is you just look at what the populations that have certain habits and look backwards. So you look at vegetarians and look at their cancer risks. And I'm talking not just right now, right? I'm talking somebody that was 80 that was vegetarian or people in the past. And you look at those subgroups. And I think what's clear is it's never just necessarily the inclusion or exclusion of one thing that makes a statistical difference. I'm like, whoa, they get a lot more, a lot less. Plenty of vegetarians, right, which is very common, like in India and in, in the Middle East that aren't being thwarted with cancer. So like, how does one explain that? They're never eating meats, right? So I'm going to go deeper. This is where really like pharmacogenomics matter, not just pharmacogenomics, but even just your genomics as an individual. And there's a lot of people doing that precision genomics. We keep grouping conclusions based on the color of our skin or where we live or other these really loose modifiers. But we have these things called SNPs, which are polymorphisms, that are basically different shades of color of how we process everything, what something is good for our gut or bad for our gut. And we've identified so many of them. Those are the things that can tell you what your normal B12 level should be, what your normal iron should be, how much fruits is too much, how much is bad, because of what your body does with them and responds to them. Without knowing that information, you're generalizing what one may say, again, by figuratively looking at the color of somebody's skin. I was very humble when somebody told me, Sanjay, you know these B12 levels, why do you think the range is 500 to 1600? Don't you think it's a huge range? And I said, yes, it's huge. Some people, I swear, are having vitamin B12 deficiency symptoms, and they're not deficient on scale. They're like Because those numbers are just based on a very heterogeneous, diversified constellation of SNPs or polymorphisms without knowing how it applies to the actual blood function and circulation of that individual. So that's why these debates happen, I think, is because forever we keep talking about things without looking at things we've since learned. What is the test that you're referencing that would let us know what our best diet is individually? So for the gut, there's stool stuff and even saliva stuff, and they isolate the different types of bacteria and see which ones are associated with the higher incidence of autoimmune disease, of inflammation, of neurologic disease, because we think that's tied to the gut microbiome, versus which are protective, which are protective for cancers, which are protective for the lining of the gut, which are protective for good stool. And they'll assess all of that stuff. Google has multiple companies. And then the other one is where you would type in like precision 
genomics, G-E-N-O-M-I-C-S. And there's multiple companies that do that. Genetic polymorphism test for diet. Totally honestly, I do a ton of consulting for these startups that are trying to help people because the good ones seem to be the worst marketers. And the best marketers have products that are just very like deceptive. But there's so many that are niched into this specific setting. Because if you just looked at polymorphisms, pharmacogenomics says, hey, this doctor, I just realized they give 500 metformin to everybody, but I'm not everybody. What does that 500 metformin mean for me? What does that statin mean for me? What does that like vitamin D supplement mean for me? That's all pharmacogenomics. So that has to do with what enzymes, how fast or slow they break down anything that you're being prescribed. That is different than polymorphisms for ideal diet. And that's where they can look at these quote unquote SNPs now, and they can actually discern, you know, Mediterranean diet works really well for this because they have a higher incidence of storing fat into their arteries. Like that's a very gross, obtuse example of saying it. But because of our polymorphisms, those diets vary based on what we do with what we intake. And now when we're discovering this, this is where finally we're like, aha, this is why it's so confusing. Why every five years there's a stint on Netflix where red meat is terrible and da 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 da. All of a sudden, no, it's not. Why do we keep having these swings? Because it's too heterogeneous and diversified and it depends on the individual. And you cannot make these like obtuse conclusions other than processed meats in my opinion. So I think that the reason that people are looking for these wider recommendations is because these tests are still expensive and accessible. They're hard to access for a lot of people. It makes it tricky to say like, oh, you should go get this personalized medicine because obviously that's amazing, but that is inaccessible to a lot of people. So just to standardize a little bit more, do you think there's any truth to any vegetables being a negative in terms of cancer because of something like anti-nutrients? So me personally, if we're removing pesticides and you're just talking about the straight up vegetables that are common and have been around for 100, 200 years, I don't think vegetables alone, again, assuming taking out the whole pesticide thing, because that's a whole different beast or quote unquote causing cancer. So let's talk about pesticides for a second. Do you think that there's enough of a correlation or even causation that we're seeing with the data there? that would make it so we would want to buy organic as much as possible? That's the frustrating thing about medicine is we find out things retrospectively, right? Like where I lived for my medical training, I just kept getting these letters that says, hey, sorry, your water wasn't up to code and it had too much of this thing that causes cancer. And that's it. They're just like, have a good day. And I'm just like, bro, that was three months that I was drinking that. So it's the same thing with pesticides. Avoiding Anything that's been tampered with with chemicals is never a bad idea. You know, it's just a matter of the cost part of it that makes it challenging. But you do think that there is pretty strong research behind pesticides and cancer. We know some things like Roundup, for example, we know retrospectively now that they've caused cancer. So it depends. Like in Roundup, we were using everywhere, right? So yes, there is data that depending on what is being prepared, how that has been challenged, especially to IARC, which is kind of the international way, like a risk assessment for cancer, has been shown to quote unquote may cause cancer, like the sweetener stuff. Ideally, anything that's less tampered with is probably a good idea. You mentioned your water. Do you think it's important to filter water if you're having a conversation about reducing cancer risk? I think filtered water is, yes, a good thing for the same example where I lived, I mean, just constantly we got those letters. Like it was that the water was not too code, right? And it could be elements, it could be industrial. We know there's been cases of industrial leaks 
you know, there were areas where people were popping up with the cancer like crazy and it took forever to finally say, hey, this was from corporate. I think it makes it challenging and filtering is seldomly harmful and potentially beneficial. And then you said that you think that the Sugar Cancer Association is perhaps more complicated than we're talking about, especially in the media. Can you explain how you think about eating sugar with cancer risk? Yeah, so the place this came from is Dr. Warburg. What he did was he basically said, okay, can I starve my cancer by giving its fuel source, which is glucose, like making it go away? So there are cancers that is common that have mitochondrial injury. The mitochondria is the mother. It's actually from your mother is where you get it purely, which is one of the few things that I think in some celestial way, like very comforting and goes to the mother nature thing. And But you get it just from your mom, the mitochondrial DNA. And when that gets impaired, not what you got inherited, but in cells in your body, it cannot use fuel sources like your normal cells. And what he theorized and showed was that if there was impaired mitochondrial stuff to be able to break down glucose or it needs glucose and it can't do some of the other things, if I take away glucose, does the cancer die? And it did happen in mouse models. What we've learned is, and there are studies looking at it, is yes, cancers may not be able to then use the glucose it uses to grow, but we know that there's other amino acids that it uses. Siddhartha Mukherjee, he was on my podcast, he's the Pulitzer Prize winner that wrote Emperor of All Maladies, and he's doing a test, and he very strongly believes that removing a specific amino acid or two, depending on what kind of pancreatic cancer you have, in addition to possibly suppressing glucose, can have a significant effect on cancer. And this is all a metabolic conversation where, I want to say this clearly, I don't think just having no sugar is adequate. Thomas Seafried also has some things where he blocks certain amino acids, but it is a fuel source for cancer. And that's where that theory comes from because it's not incorrect is glucose a fuel source for cancer yes is glucose a fuel source for all your other cells yes does a cancer have an ability to use it an alternative fuel source if it doesn't have glucose yes and that's what we're looking at what are those alternative ones and in addition to stopping the glucose and an alternative that specific amino acid or two then can we start the cancer cell if somebody was interested in eating a cancer preventative diet, how would you suggest they approach added sugars? I wouldn't say that they need to avoid all added sugars at all costs, but I think the data is starting to show that having mindfulness as compared to 10 years ago when we used to say it didn't matter, there is a thought and studies undergoing that is there a mount where we could say there's a statistical benefit and outcome? And I think most people that are experts in this field are saying it does make a difference. Most people have metastatic, you know, incurable cancer, but they can live years. People live years now, right? Potentially. I don't want somebody to not enjoy sugar for the rest of their life to potentially give them either a week or no difference and, and but have made the last three very challenging. But I think some modification and ultimately, like whoever you're getting treated for, talking to your nutrition and dietitian, finding a good one to have that mindfulness can make potentially a difference. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. 
I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash lizmoody. That's drinkag1.com slash lizmoody. Check it out. I started hearing about colostrum a year or so ago, and I got so many messages from all of you. Was it hype? Was it worth it? I am super cautious about any recommendations that I give you, so I wanted to do a deep dive into the research and try it myself, which I've been doing for the past six months. And I'm happy to say that I was really pleasantly surprised by what I found. First of all, if you're like, what is colostrum? It is the first nutrition we receive in life, and it contains all of the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. The brand I tried is Armra Colostrum, and they're definitely the highest quality one that exists. The reason I wanted to try it was for my allergies. I am allergic, unfortunately, to my fur daughter, Bella, which does not stop me from cuddling her during most of my waking life. And there's really interesting research about how colostrum can help. Essentially, it reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokines that can cause allergic reactions. And a number of studies show that it helps protect and heal your gut and help feed your microbiome, both of which have downstream positive impacts on allergies. I've personally seen a huge difference in my itchy eyes, my stuffiness, and all of that, which is a huge win for me. And if you suffer from gut issues on their own, obviously that research would point to it being helpful there. It also has been shown to fight viral and bacterial infections in the gut, which is great for travel, but just also if you feel like anything is off and you want to create a better state of balance. There's also great research around its ability to regulate your immune system And that inflammation regulation will have so many other impacts, including helping with skin health, helping with energy, and more. Armor Colostrum is a sustainably sourced colostrum concentrate that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients. While most colostrums undergo heat pasteurization, Armor Colostrum uses proprietary cold chain biopotent technology that preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients to guarantee the highest potency and bioavailability of any colostrum on the market. Armor Colostrum also sources their colostrum from grass-fed cows from their co-op of dairy farms in the USA, and they strictly source only the surplus supply of colostrum after calves are fully fed, which was so important to me. Armor Colostrum goes through extensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure their colostrum meets the highest bar of purity and efficacy, which includes being certified glyphosate-free. If any of that sounds good to you, we have worked out a special offer just for my audience. Receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Liz Moody or enter Liz Moody to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A dot com slash Liz Moody. 
You were talking about fueling these cancer cells. I've heard about something called autophagy, which is like you're starving the cancer cells and they're sort of like clearing out from your body. Is there any truth in that? Basically, that happens all the times. Our bodies are clearing out the dead cells. So we said earlier how your hand is a different hand. All these things, your body is constantly moving. The thought to what you're saying is, can we basically catalyze or tease or entice our immune cells to clear the active cancer cell? And I think that is the active part is challenging, but there is thought that if you can starve it with having a very strict like ketosis and like reduce your glucose. So Thomas Seafried is one that speaks worldwide on this all the time. They're looking at basically doing exactly that. Can I starve it so much that it starts to decay? And then can my immune system or immune cells then go clean up the mess? There are people looking into that. And that is a thought. That is also a thought on why, now this is going pretty deep. We continue treatment in a non-curative setting indefinitely. And we're like, well, you got to have maintenance. You got to like have something on board to control the cancer. But there's a subset of experts that are saying we should be pausing the treatments so that our immune systems can recover. Some fewer that even say they feed or charge the immune systems so that they can go and clean up the mess and the colonies and areas that we've like either starved or kill. So there is that thought evolving. And you nailed a good point that I think the medical community, you know, and I'm in it. I try to keep an open mind with anything, but the medical community is finally looking into that as well. And I hate it because a lot of places don't get access to this, including here. We have great nutrition and dietitianists, but that's the beauty of the internet. There's a plethora of places that if you go to an academic person, an academic center, you'll be surprised. They'll email you back more often than you realize. Do you think there's any validity to something like intermittent fasting helping with the process yes. of autophagy? Well, at least with cancer prevention. and they all go back to the kind of similar theories that cancer became a cancer, but what about the before the cancer? What about pre-cancer? What about those colonies that are starting to get sketchy that don't have those invasive properties where it can still like fight through if you're in ketosis? There's a theory that doing intermittent fasting, having a low glycemic index so that you can really push that circulating sugar down. There's a theory that that can reset or basically let your immune system take care of these colonies that were starting to look sketchy, like starting to smolder. And there's a lot of studies and trials going on that. I personally do believe if you're not on insulin, right? Because otherwise intermittent fasting is dangerous. But I personally believe that intermittent fasting has a role not only in cancer prevention, ultimately for the same reason, you get better glucose regulation, but also to be able to potentially take care of quote unquote pre-cancer, you know, we call them sometimes either immune deserts, which means that's where cancer wants to fester, or we call them like precancer, just colonies or areas. When you say that, do you mean like a 16-8 schedule? What are you thinking when you think intermittent fasting? So any amount of intermittent fasting is good, right? I do 16 and 8. And I get, you know, sometimes patients that really want to get healthy, especially in their 40s when they realize they have fatty liver disease and stuff. 16 and 8 is a great place to start. It helps to that whole concept of taking off the expired thing off the shelf and putting a new one on. No matter what, when you have not had calories, when your body is not getting the glucose directly and getting to quote unquote chill, it has to burn something to mobilize the sugar. It happens all the time. Glucagon and insulin are always like one and the other. Glucagon's a certain level, 
and it's directly counter to the insulin level. So when you get low, your glucagon goes up to bring out more sugars from your fat stores and everything else into circulation, and your insulin's low because it doesn't need to pull anything away. When you eat, the insulin, which is a growth factor, goes up, and the glucagon isn't mobilizing the fats from your body and your liver into circulation. So the 16 and 18 8 is better than nothing, but ideally, I think there's some truth to the whole 24, 36 hour, not all the time, but that window then you could see may make more sense because now you're really kicking up that burning between 18, 24, 30 hours from places that have been collecting dust on the shelf because you haven't had any calories ingested until then. Okay. Noted. I'd love to move into some of the environmental exposures a little bit. One question I got so much from my audience was the connection between technology use and cancer. I would love to get your take on what the research actually shows about things like 5G, Wi-Fi, wireless headphones. I get asked about all of the time if that's increasing some sort of risk of brain cancer, keeping cell phones in our pockets or computers on laps, things like that. So I'm sure y'all had a period with the whole aspartame and sugar thing, right? And and they were talking about the cancer risk, probable versus possible. So IARC is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, and they have wireless phone use as a possible uh, carcinogen to humans. So it's a group 2B. They have a ton of stuff, like night shift is that or even stronger. We know that being a night shift worker, cancer to even a, a more definitive degree. So my point in saying that is, again, remember, it's everything put together. but. I had two neuro-oncologists from very top centers on my podcast, and I asked them point blank, does it or doesn't it? And I couldn't get a clear no. So I think I take that to mean that exactly what IARC says, it's possibly like contributing to cancer, right? And that's why the confounder part is so hard to prove. Confounder meaning what other variables were taking place. We already said that the people in 1960 get more cancer than the 50s. So if you look at a whole bunch of people that are born like me in late 80s or 90s, and we know they're getting cancer younger, how do we know if it's the cell phone or not, or the wireless technology versus the diet versus everything else? But it's not also a clear home run that people get glioblastoma or meningiomas. These are some of the fancy brain tumor terms. It's not like starkly clear like it is, unfortunately, to have visceral fat is far more correlative than like a cell phone per se. And the way you say that is, how many people have cell phones? How long have they been using them? How much has glioblastoma, the primary brain cancer that everyone's scared of, gone up? They're not nearly as proportional or correlative, right? Because you should see a big uptick in GBM. So when you think about it in your own life, would you use wired headphones instead of wireless headphones? For me personally, and I realize I'm sounding more health conscious than I actually am on this podcast. Everything's about lift and return. For me, if I don't need to have the cell phone to my ear, then yes, I'm going to use AirPods for that exact possible risk. Do I eat fast food? Yes. Do I eat it as often as I'd like? No, I do avoid it. And then I read this one thing about the charging. That makes sense because you're having this battery recharge when it's plugged in. There was an article that came out recently that it you know, very much potentially increases the radiation exposure. And they're now suggesting to put it into like a drawer and things like that. That's interesting and actionable. So when you're charging your device, it's releasing more radiation. So don't have it right by your head, for instance, at night charging. Correct. Yeah. And because it's an IR2B, I do put it on speaker. I'm that annoying person. I don't do it, obviously, in intimate company, but I have AirPods or speaker just because it's like less close to my head. There's a lot of concern from my audience about AirPods or wireless headphones. You think those are better than putting the phone to your head? The phone, for me personally, I'm more concerned about the battery 
and then the, also the battery recharging. Like that's that kind of electromagnetic stuff. The phone emits more than an AirPod does. I understand that the AirPods closer in, but obviously conceivably everything that's in there is far less quote unquote intense than the device right itself. Okay. Interesting. We joke about this in my house all the time, but is there any connection between like phones and pocket and sperm count or testicular cancer or laptops on laps and that type of thing? The same thing applies. Like if we know it transmits something that's even possible, then that same IR2B category applies to where you're putting it. I don't know that it has a difference on sperm count though. It's interesting that you cite the IR2B thing because that's being used on social media to make people feel better, not to exercise more concern. Like recently, Diet Coke came out as something that was a possible carcinogen. And everybody's like, yeah, but look at all these other things on the possible carcinogen list. It's all of these things we interact with on a day-to-day basis. That's why you should believe it's fine. And it sounds like you're taking almost an opposite stance of like, it's on this list. If you can exercise caution, go ahead and do so. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? These are all possibles. Like everything you're asking about, like acetyl, all this and that, these are all things that are quote unquote possibilities. Again, the lift and return. If I don't go out of my way, it's just easier to, why not? What about microplastics? Do you think that's going to be a big cancer risk over time? There's a theory that because of all the plastic bottle use, especially like if it's sitting in the sun, are you having some kind of polymer stuff that's like somehow sitting into the water? especially in the heat. You don't know how it got to the grocery store, you know, got it delivered in and stuff. There's a soft theory, I think, that's waiting to see if it's proved on cholangiocarcinoma, which is a bile biliary stuff, cancer, and pancreatic. There's a theory that that is contributing. So for me personally, without the data to validate it, my MO is I filter the water and I just fill it into like an aluminum can because they do reduce the risk of that plastic. And they are looking into that. So let's let's just say what it is. And that's concerning to me. Are there any other environmental factors that you think we should be more concerned about that we're not talking about? I do think fast food and rich diets, I can't say that enough. I think too many of those spikes are a bigger problem than we realize. If you believe at all in evolution, our bodies have adapted to so much. That's why we have eyebrows. Like people couldn't like see well and like, and they got into trouble because they couldn't wick away the sweat. The same concept applies to having the ideal diet or form of our bodies and our biomes and and our axis, our gut and neuroaxis, as what our diets evolved it with, not in a hundred years, but in thousands of years. Like we've been like around for hundreds and hundreds at least of years, right? And that evolution, you have to believe if we have persisted, then anything that gravitates back to that is probably a safer bet than something we've introduced in a synthetic or manufactured way, because that's something at our best guess for the bodies that have come as a product of the things that are already available. My point in saying all that in a long-winded way is I don't think any of us are brave enough with our like legumes and nuts and oats. And we avoid things that are unfamiliar. I think having a robust diet is far more valuable than we even realize in the medical community. What about VOCs, like things, volatile organic compounds that off-gas off of a couch or a mattress or a carpet or paint? Is that something that you think the data supports being concerned about? I don't think the data will ever be able to clearly say that that independently is a risk factor. But theoretically, again, it's there. 
theoretical just means can you conceive that something that was manufactured or something that may have a risk with cancer that has been put into this and it breaks down or gets aerated and you're exposed to it that's theoretically possible right when i say can it be independently proven that means that all things alike that you have to be able to say there's a statistically higher number of people that have cancer with all things being equal i don't know that it'll ever show it's to that degree just because again the flux of diet and immune system and all of these gazillion things it's tricky, but I can't say that there's data now that says that this definitely causes cancer without it being an extrapolation off of something crazy. Sometimes they'll expose a mice to 10,000, the amount of exposure that you would get and say, look, it sure does. That's where you really have to go back and see where the data is coming from and what was studied. That's on like a population basis, though, but can't we expose cells to certain chemicals, to certain like environmental exposures and see what happens to that cell and then surmise that if that cell's in our body, the same thing's happening. Can we not kind of dive in on an individual mechanism of action perspective and see what these outside environmental exposures are doing to the cells in our body? We do do this. And I think that's where the problem is. And that's where a lot of people end up spending a ton of money on herbals and supplements and false promises because they're like, well, studied. The thing that we forget is when we expose our cells to that, we are removing it from its relationship on our immunity in our body. That's the key. That is the biggest key. And that's why I said when you take a cancer cell in a body of God forbid it me, and that means that cancer has escaped my immune system. It has a feature that my immune system can't see it. If you put it into someone else, and we've proven this, that cancer will go away in that other person. A cancer lives for about three days. And that immune system in that person's body was able to pick up on it. And that's why you see these things every now and then, and I get the press and everyone's saying like, it's a miracle cancer drug, miracle cancer drug, or the immune system component is removed, or worse, they look at it only on a cellular level, like from literally one cell replicating to another, whereas that doesn't put in everything that happens in communication. Like this, our cells sweat, they actually sweat called exosomes and they signal. So that's why I think it's more dangerous than anything else to theorize what happens on a cell. Plus... A lot of times you're exposing it to logarithmically higher doses. They have mice models where they expose it to caffeine and stuff, nicotine. They're like, it died. It's brain got fried. It was wired. Yes, because it was 10 to the third higher than any of a human could consume in 24 hours. I hope anyone listening to this, there's two ways you can hear it, listen to it. You could say the medical community just skirts around saying yes or no to everything, or it's complicated and there's so many variables that one thing could still not necessarily be bad to somebody else. It's a full circle to the smoking. But people who are running to smokers that don't get COPD, 90% don't, only 10% do. But 90% of people with COPD are smokers. So it's like, but 90% don't ever have it. Why? Why? It's not fair. Why? So smoking, is it bad for your lungs? Yes. It's still yes. The answer is yes. But it's just never going to be like where that one thing is applicable to everyone. What can you do to bolster the most protection to where you can sleep at night? I had the privilege of getting to see patients that are sadly stage four, incurable. They're in the 30s. I have patients that are maybe even curable in the 40s all the time. And the big thing that they want people to take away, and I take it away when I go home every night, is the biggest talk is, what did I do to cause this cancer? And most often I can say, you didn't do anything. Like that one thing, that this is your fault, right? We know it's complicated. But God forbid, if any of us have to have that diagnosis, the question is, were we somewhat conscientious about the things that we can do to protect ourselves, which is secure your immune system, keep it healthy, 
keep your biome healthy. Those are the two biggest things. Sleep well. If you're not sleeping well, your CSF around your brain and your spinal cord, it cannot get the toxins out. The only way it gets the toxins out are, are REM sleep, whereas everything in our body, our liver and kidneys take care of. So you have to sleep well. Otherwise, your cortisol goes up. You get low testosterone. You get erectile dysfunction. Why? Why do you get all this with sleep apnea? Because you need to sleep. And then you want to make sure you work out to some regularity. If you're not doing it now, that's fine. Don't be okay with another six months to do it. I told you four minutes of intense exercise. When I found that study, I was sitting here doing squats. I stopped doing them. And I just asked myself, and I was like, I'm a degenerate. Why am I not doing it anymore? I asked myself that on the elevator. I'm like, why am I not taking the stairs? I don't have a good answer. But I've plagued you now telling you that that reduces up to 20% chance of having cancer is more strenuous. And I'm hoping this catalyzes me to do it. So as long as you do the most and have some conscientiousness or consciousness about it all, I think that is the best bet at the end of the day. Four minutes of strenuous exercise a day, right? Yes. That led to a one out of five people, technically could look at it, avoided getting cancer because of that 20%. And if I was to say to you, prescribe me your ideal workout regimen to keep my immune system as robust and healthy as possible, what would that look like? It would be the stuff that gets your heart rate up. There's no question. So, you know, lifting is great. Lifting is good for other reasons, like osteopenia, making your bones strong, et cetera. But just that cardiovascular uptick is what that sympathetic, parasympathetic system, they're always at odds to each other. Working out helps all of that. So things that are strenuous, whether it's swimming, whether it's boxing, just anything to mobilize your blood system because it pulls the lymph, which has toxins in it. There is data that shows like saunas like really do help with, they always say impurities, this and that, but it, it can even help with high blood pressure and stuff. It, again, does that same concept of mobilizing some of the toxins and lymph stuff around. So the high cardiovascular rate is the main thing. If you want to talk about reducing fat and having a better glucose control, then I believe interval training is better than steady state. You will tap more into sprinting hard at 90%, taking a walk or jog, sprinting hard again, doing something that's dynamic more than you will just running at the same pace, even though you do it a little faster two or three weeks, because it's that insult. How much are you just pushing it and pulling it, pushing and pulling it that makes the difference? Women's healthcare is historically under-researched, and that certainly includes prenatal pregnancy and postpartum care. I recently discovered the brand Needed, and I was so impressed, I immediately began telling all of my friends who are expecting or just became new moms. Needed is a research-backed company offering radically better nutrition for women from conception to pregnancy to new motherhood and beyond. Prenatal vitamins are typically designed around recommended dietary allowances or the bare minimum amount of a nutrient needed. Pregnant and nursing women were intentionally excluded from much of the now outdated and stale research that set these recommended minimums. And what would you know, 95% of women, 95% of women in perinatal stages have nutrient deficiencies. Needed offers products that are formulated by experts in women's health and are backed by clinical insights from their collective of over 4,000 practitioners, from dietitians to midwives to OBGYNs. Their products offer the forms of nutrients your body can actually use, dosed at optimal versus bare minimum levels. They also go above and beyond with third-party tests, testing every single batch to ensure the safest product, which is something I always look for. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use code LizMoody for 20% off your first month of needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use code LizMoody for 20% off your first month of needed products. 
I have been looking for a quality fish oil to take myself and recommend to you for years, and I genuinely couldn't find one that met my quality standards. And then I kept hearing from doctors on the pod about how important it was for our brains and our hearts, even dermatologists who said it makes a huge difference for our skin. And I was like, okay, I truly need to figure this out. Then I found O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil from Puri. The brand was literally created because the founder ran into the same problem as me. He couldn't find anything truly pure enough to take daily. Puri believes in full transparency with all of their products. Every single batch is third-party tested by the Clean Label Project and IFOS, which tests fish oils looking for the highest quality, safety, and purity standards in the world against more than 200 contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, dioxins, and bisphenols, to name a few, and they always receive a 5 out of 5 star rating. Every Puri bottle actually comes with a QR code so you can scan and see the results for yourself. This is well above the standards of any other fish oil I've found, which is so important to me because if I am consuming something for my health, I don't want it to actually be causing harm. Puri's fish oil is so fresh, you'll never get any gross, fishy burps because every batch is tested to make sure it hasn't oxidized and gone rancid. And yes, that is where those burps come from. Do not just take my word. With Puri, you can find actual data behind every single batch, which makes Puri a supplement brand that you can trust. Right now, Puri is offering my listeners 20% off their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil and all of their great products. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash Liz Moody, and use my promo code Liz Moody. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions. You will get almost a third off the price. Go to puri.com slash L-I-Z M-O-O-D-Y. Do not wait. Use promo code Liz Moody at P-U-O-R-I dot com slash Liz Moody. Can you give us maybe two things that we haven't talked about yet or two things that wouldn't likely come to mind that we can do to support our immune system, not in the name of not getting, you know, an upper respiratory virus, but in the name of being able to clear out that cancer and two things that maybe we should stop doing because they're having a negative impact on our immune system in that same way? Letting yourself have poor sleep habits. That's to me is the number one thing. But we have a huge systemic problem in this country with that. Like we're on our phones. I'm guilty. Fall asleep on the couch. Even though you think you're sleeping, it's the deep REM. If you're having a micro awakening, you're breaking it. You're just constantly breaking it. Our sleep hygiene is pitiful. So that's number one, myself included. Number two, cruciferous vegetables. You really need to just get more green on your plate. Like if you're thinking to yourself, when was the last time? Or if you're thinking to yourself, how many times in the last month? That's too little. That's just way too little. There's these sexier little kale chips and all this stuff I see on Instagram. Like whatever, do what you got to do. But you got to get the cruciferous stuff, get the berries and all that in. I think tea and coffee whether it has caffeine or not, but the coffee bean and tea, they have good properties. There was a big study that showed that people that drink two to four cups a day for 15 years versus no coffee drinkers, they had a 20% reduction in death of any kind. Coffee drinkers. I thought coffee was bad. It's bad if you put a whole bunch of junk in it. The phenols in the coffee bean are very protective for a lot of reasons, immunity, heart. They actually decreased any heart issue by 25% two to four cup drinkers versus zero. So that actually made me drink more coffee because I used to do Celsius and and things that aren't great. And yeah, and have a heterogeneous diet. Sleep well, exercise, heterogeneous diet, more cruciferous vegetables and fruits and stuff. And I think those by far, you know, go a long way. And then give us two things to stop doing. 
or to eliminate from our diet or eliminate from our lives. It doesn't have to be from our diet. It could be stress. It could be like anything from our lives. Well, I will say you asked, what can you ingest that causes cancer? There is no question. And I hate saying this and I still drink, but alcohol, no amount is considered safe. Like it definitely has a relative risk. So all these things you talked about that do they or don't they, the mattress, whatever, none of that matters. Like if you're a night shift worker, if you have like poor sleep, sleep apnea, if you drink alcohol, these are things that are demonstrated increased risks. So I'm not going to tell you to eliminate it if it makes you happy, but if you reduce it or moderate it a little bit, that could go a long way. If you smoke or vape, I would strongly consider trying not to do that. It's definitely going to have dividends that could be favorable if you are able to stop that at some point. And then stress, of course, and stress is a whole different podcast, but there's sleep, physiologic stress, there's emotional stress. How does stress get helped? Because it's putting your adrenergic drip on overdrive. The flight or flight stuff is just dripping, dripping, dripping. That decreases your immune system. So seek help, like get the behavioral therapy if you can, mental, like don't be shy, in my opinion, of an SSRI or medication because it's a reset button sometimes. When I used to do internal medicine and I focused on sleep, obviously, and depression, and I was like, let's just reset things, get you healthier and better. And then we were able to taper off. But it's a slippery slope because depression broods more depression, increased cortisol and poor sleep broods more poor sleep. And sometimes it just requires that. Those would be just hugely life-changing practices. You're able to do those things over five or 10 years versus not. In the clearest possible terms, is vaping still a risk factor? A lot of people think that it's the healthier alternative to smoking. It definitely has not been shown to have the same risk on lung cancer that tobacco smoke does, if that's what you're asking. But you still think it's a risk factor? You said stop smoking and vaping. For cancer, it's the tobacco smoke. For healthy lives, the high degree of nicotine and then also not knowing what's in it could cause for the same reason, potentially stuff downstream. I will say this you know, confidently, I don't think it's nearly as injurious as tobacco smoke. And then can we just talk about screening briefly? What tests should we actually be getting? I feel like when you become a grown-up, nobody gives you a handbook to like, oh, go see this doctor every year and get this tested. Like we sort of know a few, you know, all my friends are getting pap smears. Some are getting skin cancer checks. But if you were going to say, get these things screened on a yearly basis at a minimum, what would you say? Well, this is where you really need a good primary doctor. So if you don't have a good relationship or you're like, my primary doesn't tell me, you need to tell them to tell you or you need to find another one that's truly their job it's like just make sure you're up to date on all screening but with that said mammograms annual is a pretty clear recommendation starting at at least 45 some people start at 40 the reason that you said some people do and don't is because the guidelines actually debate also they split hairs on when to but i don't think anyone argues that mammograms aren't helpful to catch a pre-cancer or early cancer if you are 45 colonoscopy you need one. If it's crystal clear, they give you 10 years. If you have a polyp that's a little sketchy, but not that sketchy, it's five years. Anyone at 45 should have it. If you have a primary family member, meaning mom, dad, sister, brother, son, whatever, that had cancer, you take away 10 years from that age. So if they had colon cancer at 50, 40, then you need your colonoscopy at 40 and not 45. If they had breast cancer, you talk to your doctor. They said, Hey, I know I don't get till 40. My, my mom was 45. Do I need it you know, sooner? These guidelines are based on if you don't have a family member with it. But that's for sure. Colonoscopies for sure. Mammograms for sure. Pasmineers are absolutely for sure. The only reason we have cervical cancer here is because of usually negligence. We get a huge lead time. So 
talk to your OB or your primary about that. And then the big one that's neglected all the time is if you smoke, and if you smoke for over 25 pack years, so if it was 25 years a pack a day, or if it was two packs a day for 13 years, those are both 25 years, and you're over 50, low-dose lung cancer screen. 92% of doctors don't order this when they're supposed to. It is by far the biggest preventer of death than any other screening modality. It saves one out of four people. So you tell your parents or grandparents or whoever, this is just tobacco smoke. Skin exam, if you find something sketchy, somehow a little debated. I think it's very important, but I'm slanted as a cancer doctor. So anything that looks suspicious, talk to your doctor about. What do you think about things like Pronovo or the things that are you're getting an MRI and it's telling you if there's cancer in various parts of your body? So that or Grail, you know, these like liquid biopsy and stuff. If you truly have the signs of cancer and maybe your doctor can't find it, but believes that there's a problem, meaning you have weight loss, like true weight loss and, and worse than weight loss, you have no appetite and you're used to or generalized unwellness. That's where these tests can be helpful. Just know that when you do the test, it's only looking at that moment. And cancers don't hang around for years, invasive cancers. So it doesn't say anything about six or eight months from now or 12 months from now. So it's like, where do you draw the line on when do you feel comfortable? Like it could also do false security, right? So you may not have anything that you could see on one of these tests today. You need 200 million cancer cells in one place to see it on a CAT scan. 200 million. So you could be clear, but then when do you repeat the blood test? When do you repeat the total body imaging? So that's the concern. And then what if it shows something and 99% of the time it's negative? How much anxiety is it going to cause you? What lengths do you have to go to financially and risk-wise to go get a piece of it? And if they all say, I swear it's fine, but you know it's there, do you take that financial toxicity and the risk of the procedure and anesthesia? So all of these are downstream issues that I think are more, I guess, discouraging than what meets the eye. Because trust me, I would get a full body MRI every month if I could, right? Just because I just want to know. Not every month. Maybe I do every six months. But the point is, it'd be nice. But then the question is, what happens when you find something? And what's the reason you're getting it? In your mind, is there a disadvantage in some ways of our ability to find cancers that much sooner? Like I was reading a thing about how all of these older men were getting tested positive for prostate cancer. And in fact, they would be clearing that out. But because we can detect it so much sooner, they're going through these bouts of treatment that perhaps they don't need. Prostate is one of those where we do have guidelines. We just, quote unquote, let it ride, which sounds crazy. But that's because we know that it's lower risk enough, depending on what the numbers are. It's just very unlikely it will become invasive or come through the prostate or elsewhere. There is some debate on we're over-treating DCIS or stage zero. Very mild early debate. The recommendation is still crystal clear. You take it out, you do radiation, et cetera. But the question goes into, did we catch something when our immune system would have taken care of it? But there's no doubt that for an invasive cancer, something that would become invasive, the best way to cure any of it is early. Like if you were able to catch it when it was 10 cells rather than 10 million, or, you know, 100 million, you cut it out, you're good, right? That's the whole purpose of a stage one. That's why we say, so, oh, it's good stage one breast because it's early versus a bigger tumor, the stage two or three or having lymph nodes. There are all kinds of stuff that are coming out in the next couple of years that can basically pick up the metabolic activity or fuel that cancers use way sooner and a PET scan and a CAT scan and the number of cells because they're just glorified pictures. So all that stuff is coming. And when it comes, you know, I think the whole landscape will change. And I think it'll be for sure in our lifetime. And even sooner than that, hopefully. I just started a journal with the director of Google, Applied AI, and the largest cancer organization president. 
AI and precision oncology, artificial intelligence. The whole purpose of this journal is just to talk about really all the stuff that's out there that you don't hear about that we're headed towards because it's crazy what's out there, but how long will it take to get here? Because you got to prove it. And then this could be completely off base, but if you have an autoimmune condition or you're somebody who just is like, I get sick a lot, like I'm a person who gets sick a lot, and we've just made this huge connection between cancer and your immune system, should you be getting screened more? Should you be looking for anything different? Or is there no correlation there because we're talking about like your immune system in a different way? It's a great, great question. So it depends on what the immune problem is. I'll tell you if you are someone with autoimmune problems and are on autoimmune therapy, steroids often, which decrease your immune system, MABs, the antibodies, biologics, all of that increases it. And I would definitely make sure that somewhere your primary is aware that you have a higher risk theoretically because you're down-regulating. But if you're someone just gets a lot, what's called the innate immunity, they're just things that kind of clear sinuses and say it has to do with your taste buds and all this stuff. It gets pretty complicated. You could always ask, to check your what's called immunoglobulins. That's your specific types of antibodies. But on a CBC, if your lymphocyte number, which is a white blood cell count, lymphocytes and neutrophils are consistently more or less normal. That means you have an adequate amount of the two cells, lymphocytes for viral infections, and they play a role in memory and cancer and all that stuff. And then the neutrophils fight bacterial infections. But if, if those numbers are hardy, then you don't have a true immune deficiency in that sense. Okay. So in general, there's like almost two separate parts of your immune system and these immunosuppressive drugs can suppress both parts, which can have a cancer risk and you'd want to talk to a doctor about. But if you're just like, whenever there's a cold, I get that cold, you might just have this one part have a little bit of right. an issue and that you doesn't just necessarily poor, impact cancer risk. Right. Right. You might just have poor clearance like in the nasopharyngeal area or whatever, especially if it's the same kind of sickness, then you know that it's just like a a localized, you know, traffic jam or something. Okay, amazing. And then I feel like we already have our homework assignments, which is normally what I ask for at the end of an episode. So we have decreasing stress, we have increasing sleep, we have increasing cruciferous vegetables, coffee, tea, all of the things that you shared earlier. So to end us, I would love instead for you to maybe share some advice about not letting anxiety take over our thoughts in terms of having cancer but still being proactive? Like how do we balance not being afraid of this thing, but also taking the steps that we need to do in our life? I love that question. And I'll tell you, I'm in the field when people say, how do you do it? It's depressing. I could never, blah, blah. I always get a little offended. I'm like, dude, I care very much and cry all the time. My wife's an oncologist. Literally, I don't think it's a week where one of us don't cry. But it's super, super, super humbling because what I'm about to say that like, comes from a place of me seeing every day 20 to 25 patients that have the challenge that I can't conceive having to tackle myself, even though I'm in the room every day. And the message is from them, life is finite at the end of the day. And you have not the days or weeks that I want you to think about, but minutes, minutes. We have a date, all of us, that we don't think about. There's a date and we don't know if it's in 2057 or if it's 2030. What are you doing to maximize every minute for an unknown duration that you have. And if most of them are fearing what could end that date sooner, then you're not using those minutes, right? And that's what I learned from my patients. They're just like, I've had a good life or I was happy or I'm grateful. And they say all these things and I'm just like, this is crazy that you're like able to say this with such a terrible thing that wasn't your fault. It's humbling. 
But all I take away every day is like the problems, the stressors, they're all faced with their date. They have an idea of their date, metastatic or incurable, which is not a small numbers. That's the one take home. What are you stressing about a time period for if most of it's stressed, right? That's all I take away every day. Like when somebody's rude to me at a grocery store or whatever, I'm just like, I don't know what's going on in that person's life. I don't know if they were in a visit with their family member or loved one that was my guy that seemed kind of like a jerk, but wasn't at all. It just gives me a lot of grace and understanding. I told you, I still drink alcohol every now and then. I still eat fast food. I still, I don't work out like I should. I'm the one that just dumped all this information to you and know this stuff very well, what causes cancer. And I'm not doing it all the time, but that's because everything's in moderation. Like, am I doing my best and happy? And the answer is yes. I can say, God forbid, if I were diagnosed next week or next month or next year or 10 years, at least the way I am now, I can't say like, I really regret or I should have done X, Y, Z. I will never regret the fact that I drink, you know, a couple times a week a, a drink that I don't sleep as well as I should yet because I can say I tried for what was reasonable at that time period. And that's your question that you ask yourself. Like, have you? And if you could do more, would it compromise the quality of your day? Like your day. We take a day for granted. Hmm. I love that. I think that we think about maximizing our time in terms of like, am I having my social time with my friends? Am I living my best life, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's such a valuable perspective to say, are you spending your minutes stressing about- That you're worried about, yeah. How are you spending them? I think that's such a valuable perspective and I really appreciate you sharing it. Can you tell us a little bit about where we can find you on the internet? Yeah, so my social media stuff is the Onc Doc, B-T-H-E-O-N-C for oncology, Onc, and then doc for doctor. And my podcast on everything, including YouTube, we have like animations, is Target Cancer Podcast. It's all three words. And my name's Sanjay Janeja. Thank you so much, Dr. Janeja. I really, really, really appreciate this conversation. And I appreciate everything that you shared today. Oh, I appreciate you, Liz, and everyone listening and for y'all doing the most and sharing the stuff and keep being the beacons that you are for your communities because you're going an extra mile to stay knowledgeable. And that's important. You should be proud of yourself for that at the end of the day. Thank you. <laughs> I loved how many takeaways he shared of things that aren't hard or annoying to do. Like it is very easy for me to not charge my phone by my head. In fact, we've talked in many an episode about keeping it out of our bedrooms altogether. And this is just another point in that argument. Or the four-minute bouts of exercise. I love, love, love that. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with people in your life whom you think it would benefit. And if someone shared a link with you and you were new to the podcast, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you're following the podcast on whatever platform you like to listen on. All you have to do is go to the main podcast page. That's the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and you will see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. Also, Apple just did this update that's really annoying. So if you follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, even if you have already been following for a long time, go to that little button in the top right of the main podcast page, the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and click turn on automatic download so the pod keeps showing up in your feed. 
This way you won't miss out on any new episodes. They will appear right in your feed every single Wednesday and now every other Monday. And you do not want to miss out because we have some very exciting ones coming up, including a very special anniversary episode with Zach on everything that we've learned in our 15 years of relationship and an amazing advice episode that dives deep into finding your intuition. Also, we have some really fun celebrities that I know that you love and you've requested coming up. So make sure that you're following so you do not miss out. Okay, I love you. And I will see you on Monday. Exciting for the next episode of the Liz Moody Podcast. My favorite health hacks are the ones that have the biggest payoffs for the smallest amounts of effort. And this is such a good one. When you are drinking your tea or coffee in the morning, just add one packet or scoop of Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides. I definitely was a bit of a collagen skeptic until I had dermatologist Dr. Whitney Bow on the podcast. You can scroll back to her Ask the Doctor episode. She said it is not a myth. There is research to support how great collagen is for your skin. And then, of course, I did my own deep dive and I was so impressed with the known benefits for things like your skin, your hair, and your joint health. Studies show that collagen can help improve your skin's hydration, which is something that I am especially looking for during this time of year when everything just feels a little bit drier. Zach likes the marine collagen, and then I like the grass-fed beef collagen, but both are incredibly well-sourced and certified by third parties, which is the number one thing that I look for. And since I've started incorporating collagen into my everyday routine, I have noticed strong and healthy nails, and my hair feels thicker and fuller, which we love. And Zach's knees are feeling so good despite all of the time that he is spending running. One of my favorite things about the Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Peptides is that I cannot taste them at all and they dissolve so well in hot and cold beverages. Not all collagen can dissolve in cold beverages and some days you just want an iced tea. To try out Great Lakes Wellness Collagen Packets or their bigger tubs, use code LizMoody for 25% off. Yes, 25% off. That is a huge discount off of your first purchase at greatlakeswellness.com. That is LizMoody for 25% off at greatlakeswellness.com.